Thanks for joining us on this week's episode where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 91st Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. not too long ago no very recent people probably won't have trouble remembering this one when we run them through the events of the year it also means we all have vivid memories of the movies that won at the oscars that year we do and i think it's similar to some of the more recent years we've done so if this wasn't clear from the episode description we've done another 16 movie year (laughs) we're rascals guys we can't help ourselves Yes. As we were looking through the movies of 2018, we said, oh, there's a lot of great stuff here. I think we didn't even capture all of the great movies that came out this year, but we captured eight more of them. So this will be another three-parter. I'm excited to get into it. We watched a lot of great stuff this year, but I guess we should start where we always start with what was happening in 2018. Let's put ourselves five years in the past. It's mostly bad news, so get ready for that. To start things off for us, the Parkland school shooting was this year. So that was horrible. Everyone remembers it. And then, you know, nothing happened. So great. Yes. Also in 2018, California had some real bad wildfires that year. Paradise, California was destroyed entirely and 90 people died. In political news, this was the year that Brett Kavanaugh was appointed to the Supreme Court. And you'll probably remember that circus of a confirmation hearing. I do. The the calendars. Oh, the calendars. Next, we have two pieces that are sort of our best news for this year domestically. In in ascending order. So this is the good news. Harvey Weinstein turned himself in and Bill Cosby was sentenced both for their sex crime. So a little bit of accountability. Yeah. Best thing about those stories. Yeah. And in a similar vein, this was also the year that the Golden State Killer was caught after decades of them not being able to find him. So also good news. (laughs) It would have been better if, you know, none of those assaults and the murders had happened. Right. But But they did. It's true. Okay, we're we're gonna do the same sort of ordering for our international news. So we're gonna start real bad and Uh then get to actually good. I would say like fully good. Yeah. So bad. This was the year that Jamal Khashoggi was assassinated by the Saudi government. I would say the most disappointing thing about this is how in bed so many people have just continued to be with the Saudis following this. Yeah, Saudi Arabia's influence has only grown. Yeah. So that's great news. In what I think we're calling sort of like not good, not bad. Neutral. Neutral news. Harry and Meghan's royal wedding was this year. So that was like a an huge, event. An event. People were very interested, you know, royal watchers. Mm-hmm. And in good news, Ireland overturned their abortion ban. That's great news. Way to go, Ireland. Um, way to go, Ireland. Also, this year was the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Data. Scandal, yeah. <laughs> And this is mostly good news. There was a Winter Olympics this year, too, which was fun. For us, it was kind of a hard watch because our boy Nathan Chen had a really hard time. But as we said in our 2022 episode, 
he set himself up for a, a great comeback narrative. And if the Olympics are about anything for us, it's narratives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tough for very young Nathan Chen, but he, he brought it back four years later. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's great. Okay. So let's talk about the top five highest grossing movies of the year to bring your minds back. Number one was Avengers Infinity War. Two was Black Panther. Three, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Four was Incredibles 2. And five was Aquaman. An honorable mention because we'll be talking about it later. Six was Bohemian Rhapsody. So that brings us to the nominees this year. As we said, there were eight nominees this year, which again is an interesting conversation, sort of similar to the last time we did this big movie bracket. There were 10 slots and they only filled eight of them, but we managed to add eight whole additional movies. So how hard were they really trying? Yeah. So the nominees this year were A Star is Born, Black Klansman, Black Panther, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Green Book, Roma, and Vice. Yes. And what won was Green Book. Mm-hmm. Little controversial, maybe? Yes. I believe the consensus at the time and still the consensus now, all these five years later, is bad, bad choice. Bad job, bad choice, Oscars. It's <laughs> now like at the top of worst winners lists. Yeah. Regularly. Well, part of that is, you know, it's recent history, so yes. people remember it. But part of what made it so you know, sticky in people's minds is the chilling similarity (laughs) to a year we have already done on this podcast, 1989, when you might recall that Driving Miss Daisy won in a year that Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing was not even nominated. Right. So if you think about it, the Oscars is improving because they nominated Black Klansmen. And so I think what that ultimately means is in another 30 years, Spike Lee will once again be up against a like a fun little, you know, light movie Black about people and white people are friends movie <laughs> driving together specifically. Driving and he will, together. He will win. <laughs> <laughs> but he will be the one who directed that movie. That would be wild. <laughs> Maybe that's the key. Maybe that's what the Academy is telling him. Yeah. Wild. 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 Yeah. So people people don't like this winner. This is not. But we love it. And we're going to spend the rest of this episode talking about how it's our favorite movie. (laughs) Well, we'll find out. So yes, what we have done, again, very similar to... What year did we do this for? 2000... Not 2007. 2012. 12. No, 14. You're right. It was 2014. We have added eight movies. And in the way that we always do our more than five-year movie nominees, we're doing a bracket. But this one is a true... Tournament style bracket. Get to a a number one at the end of three episodes. We set seeds by Rotten Tomato score. So our highest seed with, you know, whatever the rating was against the lowest seed, so on and so forth. We've actually done the bracket properly this time. I think we messed up our 2014 bracket, but we're improving. We're learning (laughs) and growing. And I don't know that any of the films fell into this category, but if two films have the same Rotten Tomato score, we tie break by the number of reviews. So what were the eight movies we added for discussion? Movies we added for discussion this year were Burning, Can You Ever Forgive Me, The Death of Stalin, Eighth Grade, If Beale Street Could Talk, Paddington 2, Sorry to Bother You, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And we chose those, you know, either they were things we'd seen and we liked, things we had heard were good and wanted to see, or uh, some combination thereof. Yes, things that are on other people's best of lists. Again, we know there were other things that popped up on best of lists. 
we weren't going to do more than eight. Unfortunately, (laughs) we had to keep ourselves to only 16. Okay, so we're going to go through all of the matchups now, tell you the stats for each of the movies, and then... We declare our winner as we're going through. If we agree, we'll just declare a winner or loser. If we disagree, we will have a short conversation to come to consensus. So by the end of this process, we'll have our eight losers to talk about in this episode, Mm -hmm. which we will try to get through quickly so this episode isn't four hours long. (laughs) Yeah, no one wants that. Okay, so our one seed was Eighth Grade, a coming-of-age story about a girl graduating from eighth grade. It stars Elsie Fisher and was written and directed by Bo Burnham. It was nominated for zero Academy Awards. That's up against our number 16 seed, Bohemian Rhapsody, a biopic of Freddie Mercury. It stars Rami Malek and Lucy Boynton. It's directed by Brian Singer and Dexter Fletcher. It was written by Anthony McCartan. It was nominated for five and it won four. Best Actor for Rami Malek, Best Film Editing, Best Sound Editing, and Best Sound Mixing. On the count Mm -hmm. of three, we will declare which one we think is better. Yes. One, One, two, two, three, three, eighth eighth grade. grade. Okay. I like when it's easy. Okay. Our next matchup, our two seed Paddington 2, about a family film about a young bear who is framed for stealing a pop-up book. It stars Ben Wishaw and Hugh Grant and was directed by Paul King, written by Paul King and Simon Farnaby. This was nominated for zero Academy Awards. That's up against our number 15 seed, Vice, a biopic of former U.S. President Dick Cheney. It stars Christian Bale, Amy Adams, Steve Carell, and Sam Rockwell. It was written and directed by Adam McKay. It was nominated for eight, and it won one. Best makeup and hairstyling. Mm-hmm. Okay. One. One. Two. Two. Three. three. Paddington, Paddington 2. two. <laughs> Sorry. Paddington 2. <laughs> Paddington 2. Okay. All right. Our next matchup, our three seed, Can You Ever Forgive Me? A drama based on a true story about a writer who forges literary letters. It stars Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant. Directed by Marielle Heller. Written by Nicole Hall Center and Jeff Witte. It was nominated for three and one zero. That's up against our number 14 seed, Green Book, a dramedy about a prejudiced white driver hired to chauffeur a black pianist through the Deep South in the 1960s. It stars Viggo Mortensen, Mahershala Ali, and Linda Cardellini. It was directed by Peter Fairley. It was written by Nick Vallelonga, Brian Hayes, Curie, and Peter Fairley. It was nominated for five and it won three. Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, Mahershala Ali, and Best Original Screenplay. One, two, three. Can Can you ever ever forgive forgive me? me? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Our next matchup is our four seed, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, an animated film about Miles Morales, a teen from Brooklyn that develops powers after being bitten by a radioactive spider. It stars Shamik Moore, Jake Johnson, and Haley Steinfeld. It was directed by Bob Persichetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman and written by Phil Lord and Rodney Rothman. It was nominated for one, and it won one Best Animated Feature. That's up against our number 13 seed, A Star is Born, a drama about an aging musician and his relationship with an ingenue. It stars Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga, and Sam Elliott. It's directed by Bradley Cooper and written by Eric Roth, Bradley Cooper, and Will Fetters. It was nominated for eight, and it won one Best Original Song. One. One. Two, 
three. Spider Man into, into the, the Spider Verse. <laughs> Correct. Okay. Our next matchup is our five seed, Black Panther, a superhero movie about the leader of a fictional African nation struggling with how to lead his country after the death of his father. It stars Chadwick Boseman, Michael B. Jordan, and Lupita Nyongo. It was directed by Ryan Coogler, written by Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole. It was nominated for seven and won three. Best Costume Design, Best Original Score, and Best Production Design. That's up against our number 12 seed, Sorry to Bother You, a satire about the employees at a call center attempting to unionize. Stars Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, and Stephen Yoon. It was written and directed by Boots Riley. It was nominated for zero. Okay. One, One two, three. Black Panther. I was so torn. I was going to say yeah. sorry to bother you, but I don't even need a conversation. I'm happy to okay. go with Black Panther. That's fine. No, there this are, was a close I, one. This is me. a heads up that there are probably more of these matches coming where I'm like. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> okay. Our sixth seed, Black Klansman, a dramedy based on a true story about a black cop infiltrating the KKK. It stars John David Washington, Adam Driver, and Topher Grace, directed by Spike Lee, and written by Charlie Wachtel, David Rabinowitz, Kevin Wilmot, and Spike Lee. It was nominated for six, and it won one. Best Adapted Screenplay. That's up against number 11, The Favorite, a historical comedy about two women vying for the affections of British monarch Queen Anne. It stars Olivia Coleman, Emma Stone, and Rachel Weisz. It was directed by Yorgos Lanthimos and written by Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. Nominated for nine, it won one. Best Actress, Olivia Coleman. Okay. Okay. One, One, two, two, three. three. The favorite. favorite? Okay. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, When we have a question mark in our voices, you know, it's stuff. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Our next matchup is our seven seed, Roma, a drama about a domestic worker in an upper middle class, or no, an upper class Mexican household in the early 1970s. It stars Yalitza Aparicio and Marina de Tavira. Directed and written by Alfonso Cuaron, it was nominated for 10 and won three. Best Director, Best Foreign Language Film, and Best Cinematography. That's up against our number 10 seed, Burning, a Korean thriller about a young man who reconnects with a girl from his youth. It stars Yu Ah-in, Steven Yoon, and Jeon Jung-so. It's directed by Lee Chang-dong, written by Oh Jung-mi and Lee Chang-dong. It's nominated for zero. One, one two, two, three... three. Burning. Okay. We can briefly discuss. Sure. This is another one where I really like both of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To me, without getting into too much of the actual movie, saving that, I really like the structure of Burning and think it is a cool story. But Roma, I just thought was more interesting to me on like a both political and personal narrative level i just mm-hmm. was getting i was connecting more with the character in roma and then i also really liked the background layer of the political climate seeping into this really small narrative yes i also really liked both of these films this was my first time seeing roma but my second time seeing burning also just for context the opposite my first time seeing burning and my second time yes. seeing roma i think there is really interesting thematic stuff about class and gender happening and burning as well. Mm -hmm. And I do think 
there's sort of a masterful execution of like tone and tension in burning that I, I really enjoy and appreciated. I also like, we'll get into it whenever we talk about it, but I'm obsessed with Steven Yeun. He's incredible in it. He's incredible. And while I, I also really liked Roma, I think it's interesting that in this year where we have the Green Book and the Green Book comparison to Driving Miss Daisy, this is another movie about someone in a position of privilege writing a story about their servant growing up, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so there's like a little bit of heartburn there for me. Of Is that an appropriate thing to do in the way he structures that story? Yeah. I just have some questions about it, I guess. I think that's fair but enough. I think they're both... I mean- Great. I think they're both great. And if you love burning, let's go with burning. Okay. Because I'll be happy to talk about either of them in any of these episodes. No, but this was really, really tough. Okay. Another tough matchup, if I do say so Mm -hmm. myself. Our eight seed, If Beale Street Could Talk, a romance about a man falsely accused of rape and his partner who tries to clear his name. It stars Kiki Lane, Stefan James, and Regina King. Directed and written by Barry Jenkins. It was nominated for three and won one. Best Supporting Actress, Regina King. That's up against The Death of Stalin, a satire about who will succeed Stalin following his death. It stars Steve Buscemi, Simon Russell Beale, Patty Constantine, Rupert Friend, and Jason Isaacs. It was directed by Armando Inucci, written by Armando Inucci, David Schneider, Ian Martin, and Peter Fellows. And it was nominated for zero. Okay, one, one, two, <laughs> two, three, three. If the death Beale of Street Stalin. Okay. <laughs> They're both so good. They're both really good. So here's what happened in my thought yeah. process. Right, we okay. had the favorite against Black Klansman, and this movie against. I was having death this of Stalin exact versus Street same. Talk. And so my my takeaway was like, if I'm going to say the favorite for one, I'm going to say if Beale Street could talk for the other. I had the exact same thought and I didn't really even think about it while we were doing this. But let's put Beale Street through because it just (laughs) seems like the right thing to do. (laughs) They're sort of like, yeah, kind of similar. They were really similar (laughs) matchups. Yeah. So we have our eight losers. Do we want to go in lowest seat to highest seat order, keeping Green Book for the end? Yes, that's exactly what we should do. That means we are starting with Bohemian Rhapsody. Do you want to? Yeah, so it's pretty easy to do the recap of this movie. It is a Freddie Mercury biopic. So we start the picture with Freddie Mercury as like a college age student, basically. And he one day happens upon this band that needs a new lead singer. And he's like, I will be that lead singer. And then Queen is born. (laughs) So they go on their pretty quick rise to stardom. And then that's the first act of it. And then there's a relationship stuff that happens with him and his wife because he is gay. So there's the unraveling of that relationship. Also him getting taken under the wing of a bad manager, which always happens in these things. And he becomes, you know, addicted to drugs and living a dangerous lifestyle. And he contracts HIV he reunites with Queen, who he has since broken up with, and they perform the Live Aid concert, and then he sort of gets his life together by the end of it. That's Bohemian Rhapsody. I will say, we have now watched a number of movies that are either music biopics or about musicians generally. And Mm -hmm. by and large, I've been like, I don't really love this music, so I don't know about that. 
And you've constantly said, it really helps if you like the music. And I gotta tell you. It always helps if you really like the music. This is probably the first movie we've watched like this where I really like the music. And you are absolutely right. It really does help. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I don't want to cut you off before you get too into it. But this is like kind of a universally reviled movie in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And I I just think it's no better or worse than any of the other (laughs) biopics. And I... Maybe I was in a really good mood when I watched it, but my takeaway was basically like, this is for people who love Queen, who want to watch the Queen songs being performed and see a guy doing Freddie Mercury. And you're like, I love Freddie Mercury. I love this music. It's perfectly pleasant. Should it be nominated for Best Picture? No. No. (laughs) But it's fine. It's a fine movie. To me, the structure is a little bit off because... I think the first 45 minutes of it actually really worked for me. The mm-hmm. They don't do too much setup. They drop you into a movie in a place where they're like, you know Freddie Mercury, you love Freddie Mercury, let's not do a whole thing. <laughs> he kind yes. of meets the band in the first five or ten minutes. He's kind of, of fully film. formed as a showman, too. Yes. And so the first 45 minutes is the rise. Them getting together, them learning what their sound will be, them recording music, them getting an agent, them deciding to record A Night at the Opera, which will become their most iconic album and how they record Bohemian Rhapsody up to the point when the guy who owns the record label, they're in this meeting with him and they're like, this song is perfect and it's going to be the lead single. And he's like, it can't play on the radio. It's seven minutes long. Very fun stunt casting of Mike Myers, who, of course, we know from Wayne's World and the Bohemian Rhapsody scene. So, And to me, everything up to that scene... I'm on board. After that, it falls apart because they haven't put any work into building up the emotional relationships of the piece. And so then when they start to try to transition to this thing where it's like, oh, his relationship with his wife is falling apart because of this and he's struggling with his identity. And you're sort of like, we didn't lay any track for that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so it becomes this other thing. And I don't know that that works as well. Plus, that's all the really tropey music biopic stuff where you're like, yeah, we've seen the bad manager. We've seen the guy addicted to drugs. We've seen this. We've seen that. And so that's less good. But then by the time they get around to the Live Aid performance, you're like, it's fucking queen. This is great. (laughs) Yeah, I will say like the one scene in particular, obviously all the music's great. And I love that they were constantly ragging on Roger about I'm in love with my car also, which was a funny through line to be fair to the movie also. But when they're writing, we will rock you and Mm -hmm. they're doing the stomp, stomp, clap, stomp, stomp, clap. And then you know it's about to transition into the song. It's very hard not to just sing along and like get right into those lyrics because you're like, this is is a great song. I feel like if you love an artist's music, the movie becomes a thousand times more palatable, no matter the structure. And if we can all just accept that music biopics, by and large, are not Oscar material. They shouldn't be. We should stop nominating them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But we shouldn't stop making them. They're perfectly fine. (laughs) If you love this musician, you want the movie. I get it. I was at peace. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's exactly where I am. I think it's fine. I don't think it's any better or worse. 
Queen's music rules. I liked how many cats were in this movie. I loved the cats. Why don't more movies have cats? I mean, I get that it's really hard to shoot with cats, but just generally there's this pro-dog bias in all media and there should be more cats. Also, like things just happen and they seem to have no impact. Like his his drug addiction phase is comes out of nowhere. Every suddenly everyone's like, Freddie, are you high? Freddie, you're high again. And then he's addicted to drugs and then he just yeah. stops being addicted to drugs. And you're like, okay. And then Paul Paul gets him to fire his their like big yeah, manager. That was crazy. And it seems to have no impact on anything because their lawyer just takes over and it seems fine. <laughs> yeah. You're like, okay. There are little moments that are interesting later on. Like, I do like him meeting the waiter that will go on to become his life partner later in life. Mm-hmm. And their scene where he sort of is like, I do find you very interesting, but like, I'm not going to get involved with whatever's happening with you right now. So if you're ever not doing, not this, doing that, <laughs> come find me. <laughs> yeah. So it's fine. Queen rules. That's kind of Queen totally. Take rules. It shouldn't be nominated. No. Okay. That brings us to our next film, Vice. Okay. So Mm -hmm. Vice is our other biopic this year, this time of former U.S. Vice President Dick Cheney. We start off with Dick as a young man. He's been kicked out of Yale. He has a drinking problem. He's a 'er ne'er-do-well. And his wife is like, Dick Cheney, if you don't make something out of your life and stop drinking, I'm going to leave you. And that's enough for Dick Cheney to get his shit together. And so he ends up going to Washington. He gets taken under the wing of Donald Rumsfeld. They become friends. When was it? Bush Sr. gets out of office, he leaves politics to go be a consultant. And then, of course, he gets brought back in when George W. Mm-hmm. runs. He gets asked to be the vice president. First, he demures, but then he really positions himself to be the vice president with the idea that he can really be the one pulling the strings. And then the film takes us through the Bush presidency, 9-11, the choice to go into Iraq. There's a little bit about the fact that his daughter is a lesbian and he's very accepting, but what will the family say publicly about it? There is a choice that's made to have a narrator in this film who's a seemingly unconnected character that ends up being the person who gives Dick Cheney his heart after he dies, <laughs> not, not voluntarily. Um, he chooses. He's like, I'm yeah. leaving my heart and my will to Dick Cheney. <laughs> right. Because Dick Cheney has been having heart attacks throughout the film. And that's vice. Yeah. It's just, there's a lot of problems with it because... First of all, Dick Cheney fucking blows. So, like, you're not invested (laughs) in him. I get the idea of it being a, like, how did this happen kind of gaze at the spectacle piece. But you're not invested because he he sucks. And then I also just think it's, like, too fucking cute by half. It's the way less good The Big Short. It's Adam McKay again. But... He just does too many things. It's like he didn't edit himself. There's all this bullshit stylized stuff happening where like one of the scenes turns into them speaking like they're in Shakespeare for no reason. And then there's another one where they're all ordering off the menu for various executive overreaches at a restaurant. And you're just like, how is this adding anything (laughs) to what's Mm -hmm. going on here? I don't understand why we have done any of this nonsense. Plus, I just think Dick Cheney is kind of like the least interesting character in this whole thing you sort of described it but like the reason he makes something of himself is his wife she's the one with drive not him the reason he becomes 
successful in politics is because he runs into Rumsfeld, who's like, here's everything you do. And Rumsfeld sort of directs his career for a long time. And then, you know, W is more interesting than him as this figure of how did he end up here? What the fuck is he doing? (laughs) But you're not diving into that. So you're just left with this guy who's like, doesn't say much, I guess has something going on internally about why he wants to run things, but they never get into why he does anything. Why does he want to be here? Why has this happened other than that he needs to make something of himself or his wife will leave him? It just, what was the point of it all? I also remember liking The Big Short. I've only seen it once. And I think- Yeah, we'll see if that- we still like it when it, we rewatch it later. <laughs> yeah. I think the way Adam McKay approached that made sense because it was a very dry, numbery topic, right? And so yes. you understand- I think it both worked and also you could understand why he did that to jazz up this very Yeah, like I'm explaining numbers. yeah, this economic principle yeah. that nobody gives a shit about. So I'll right. put naked Margot Robbie in the scene so you could pay attention. Exactly. I don't think that works for a biopic, which is what this is. And then the biopic is butting up against what I think this could still work for, which is the lead up to the war in Iraq. I think he could do his Adam McKay style if it was very focused on here's how we got into Iraq specifically, yeah. because that was a, a mess. But I think as is, like you said, it it feels like it's padding out what's barely a story. And then the biopic elements don't work because it's hard to be sympathetic to Dick Cheney. Especially if they don't give you any insight into why he is the way he is. Right. And I think if you did not live through that period of history, like if you showed this to a 16-year-old today, I think it would actually be still confusing as to, okay, but then why did we go into Iraq? You don't get enough of his motivation of like, why we need to go back to Iraq. I don't think they do yeah. a good enough job of tying it to the Gulf War in the film. And so you're you're not even getting that. And I thought the the Jesse Plemons narrator, I think it's supposed to hit you at the end. And it, it just was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Why is this yeah. narrator here? It was another thing where you're like, oh, how clever. <laughs> like, why is that here? My favorite thing about this movie, the thing that I found the most funny was every time Dick Cheney had a heart attack because he is so nonchalant about it. Yeah, he's just like, oh, it's happening again. Gotta go to the hospital. Gotta go to the hospital. I did enjoy that. But I just, it didn't have anything to say. It's all flash and no substance. Let's move it along. No re- okay. reason to belabor the point. Next up is A Star is Born. What's, what's happening there, Maddie? A Star is Born is about a middle-aged, nearly washed up country rock kind of musician who one day accidentally meets this young but not that young singer-songwriter woman and he finds her very fascinating and he brings her onto this like whirlwind new life basically and it's like you should come to my show and then when she comes to his show he makes her come on stage and sing her song and then all of a sudden everybody knows her and they're on tour together and things are really blowing up and they fall in love. She gets her own manager and her own music career that's sort of going in a very different direction than his. He is getting more and more. He already was an alcoholic, but he's really spiraling <laughs> as mm-hmm. the thing goes on with his addiction issues. They really love each other, but there's all these tensions to their relationship. And he re- hits rock bottom. He has to go to rehab. Her career is really blowing up at this point. When he gets out of rehab, she has another bad manager, just like the one. <laughs> In in Bohemian Rhapsody, her bad manager after he's out of rehab and they're trying to put their lives back together basically goes to Bradley Cooper's character and is like, you're destroying her life. She would never tell you this, but everything is going badly for her because you suck so much. And he, who already has suicidal tendencies, kills himself 
And that's the end. She's very sad about it. Mm-hmm. That's a star is born. So this is the fourth time this movie has been made. I believe we will have to watch another one. The first one from like 37 was also nominated for Best Picture. And then the second and third one weren't. Mm-hmm. So I guess we can elect whether or not we want to watch those movies in those years. You don't want to see Judy Garland? I'm not saying I don't. I'm <laughs> saying we'll have to make a decision. Okay. So not a new story. And I'm just curious to see what those are like and how they play out similarly mm-hmm. or differently in different time periods. But I really did not like this movie. Really? So to be fair, once again, the, the music, music in this movie. For you. Not I love me. the music in this movie. So I have a story of the, about the first time I heard Shallows, which I can tell now or later. Whenever you like. Oh, well, well let's just get into it. So I first heard that song at the dentist. I was in the <laughs> dentist chair. And it came on the radio and I was like, what is this? This is so awful. Why are they playing this on the radio? What is this caterwauling? I had an experience that I could only describe as like Lovecraftian terror where the universe stopped making sense (laughs) to me and I couldn't understand why it was happening and I couldn't get out of the situation because someone was working in my mouth. Yeah, that's right. And then I looked it up afterwards and I was like, I will probably never watch this movie because this is the big thing from this movie. And like, Mm. oh my God, it's not sonically working for me. So anyway, I hate that song. But I think overall, right, this is a melodrama. Melodrama is a tough genre because I think if you don't sort of get on the train at the beginning, it's gone. And then everything that is dramatic kind of plays comedically (laughs) if you're not invested in it. And that's Mm -hmm. a little bit where I was. I found their romance, particularly at the beginning, not romantic. I thought Bradley Cooper was condescending and weirdly aggressive the entire time. I hated the scene where he takes off her eyebrow. And then she's like, oh, I have to go home. And he's like, I'll wait for you. Oh, don't worry. I'll stay. And you're like, this guy is so scary. Like, it's not romantic. And he's constantly making choices for her. And he's constantly putting her down. And he's constantly going on and on about authenticity. And it's like, you make country music, dude. It's not like your songs are leading to world peace. Leave her alone about her pop shit. Who cares? I think the stuff with him and his brother, Sam Elliott, is pretty interesting, but it's kind of also very bare bones. The scene where he ends up blowing up at Sam Elliott about Sam Elliott throwing his dad's ranch, they haven't laid enough groundwork about that relationship. And to be honest, when he barreled in and yelled at Sam Elliott, you sold dad's ranch and turned into a fucking wind farm, I instinctively said out loud alone in my apartment, nice. (laughs) We love wind farms. I do. They're great. I think if that had been the focus of the movie, that could have been really Mm -hmm. interesting. But then Allie gets sort of left behind. And then I just have a lot of questions. I don't understand how old Allie is supposed to be. And I think how old she is sort of changes the tenor of the story, right? Is she really young? And this is an early relationship for her. Is she feeling like she's almost past her prime? Like, I what is she's the narrative there? I think she's in her 30s and has okay. decided that she isn't going to have this career that she had wanted as a kid. But And then I also don't understand over what time period this movie takes place. Is it four months? Is it 10 years? That wasn't clear to me. And I'm also not sure if this movie takes place in 2018. There's a scene later in the movie where she gets all dolled up and the dress she's wearing is like, seems really dated for 2018. And then also, and I understand this is a little bit like her manager's just fucking with Jackson Maine, but I don't feel like in 2018 where we understand alcoholism as a disease and also post sort of Taylor Swift, Kanye West, that if what happened to her at the Grammys happened to her, she would not become an 
an object of abject sympathy and like it mm. wouldn't help her career. I think that'd be very easy to spin into something that would help her career. Yeah. So I, I found that unbelievable. I also thought her characterization was inconsistent. I thought her introductory scene doesn't really inform her character in any real way. She's breaking up with a guy who proposed to her, her fiance, and it's like, okay, what does this end up meaning for her? There's a scene where she punches a cop in the face. I'm like, oh, she has anger issues, but it's like, not really. Nothing like that ever happens again. Sometimes she's really insecure. Sometimes she's not. Sometimes she's defending her music. Sometimes she seems like she doesn't want to be doing pop music. I couldn't make heads of tales of her. Things I liked about this movie. I liked her dad and all of his driver friends. Mm -hmm. And I did like the scene when Bradley Cooper tells Sam Elliott that it was him that he always looked up to. And then Sam Elliott drives away and is crying. I kind of liked all the Sam Elliott stuff, but I think there just wasn't enough of it. I also did like her bad pop song. I don't think it's as funny as the eye holes, mouth holes monologue from Birdman, but I think it's the lyrics of it are are pretty good. They are absurd. (laughs) Why do you look so good in those jeans? Why do you come around me with an ass like that? It's horrible. So those are my feelings. Okay, those are your feelings. I did not have a good time. I, for the most part, like this movie. I don't feel as strongly about it in that direction as you feel about it in the negative direction. So I don't think I'm going to spend that long talking about it. I will just stick to broad strokes. I generally like the music. I think their chemistry worked better for me than it did for you. So I was more on the ride with them. My main issue is her pop music storyline because I feel like they don't commit to it in the right way. It's sort of unclear why she's heading in that direction because the movie's opinion is like the pop music is really terrible and when you listen to it, it does have totally ridiculous lyrics like the ones you were reading. I think the story makes more sense if she's making music that she wants to make and for some reason that's not the music that he wants her to make and it's an actual point of contention between the two of them instead of this weird thing where you never get the sense that this is what she wants to do. She's just on the ride because this is what her bad manager tells her to do. And so then any argument between them doesn't really make any sense because it's not like she's standing up for her artistic integrity and they just disagree. You're like, I don't really understand why you've gone down this path anyway. So that whole subplot doesn't really work for me. But I just feel like if you're invested in their relationship, it's perfectly fine. (laughs) I think the, the and Sam Elliott's great. He makes me tear up. I think if you're on the ride with them when he has died and she's performing the song at the end in his memory, that really works for me. I think it's fine. Yeah, no, I I couldn't get into the relationship because I think the things that are quote unquote romantic at the beginning are bad, like actively bad behavior. And -hmm. I think they are traditionally portrayed as romantic. And that's a larger problem in terms of how movies portray how people should treat other people. I think that early on in a relationship, if someone is saying no to you all the time, you need to listen to them and respect their boundaries. You don't know them well enough to know what's going to happen if you push them and mm-hmm. like, more or less force them to do things. Like it's really bad behavior throughout the whole movie. And so it's just, I think that's what was preventing me from getting invested in their relationship. Do you think that her manager was psyched he killed himself? Or do you think he was like, whoops? <laughs> There had to be an element of whoops. But he's not going to tell her. He's going to take that secret. Oh, he would never tell her. No way. Rez Jarman? What the hell was his name? He had a really weird name. It was a weird name. name. I can't remember. I thought this one was bad. Okay. I think it's fine. What a range. (laughs) Okay. We're now getting into a space where I really like the remaining of these movies. We're about to talk about about four great movies. (laughs) 
So up next is Sorry to Bother You. Sorry to Bother You is a film about a guy living in an alternate reality version of Oakland, California. He is unemployed. He has a girlfriend who is an artist. And he is living in the garage of his uncle's house and not paying rent, which is causing financial strain for his uncle. His uncle's experiencing financial strain and well, yeah, not I think paying rent it's is not, not him causing no, it. No, no. He's experiencing financial strain. Him not paying rent is not helping with the financial yes. strain. It's it causing strain happening. in their relationship. <laughs> That's true. But he ends up getting a job at a call center trying to sell encyclopedias, I believe. And there's this thing going on in the background where there's this company called Worry Free that offers lifetime contracts to people where they can live, eat, and work at this company. So instead of getting paid, they get their room board paid for. And yeah, they're, they have lifetime contracts. So as our main character is working at the call center, there's the potential that he could move up to be a power caller uh, on another floor in the building. They have their own gilded elevator to get there. But, you know, obviously they're underpaid. He meets another guy working there, played by Stephen Yoon, who was trying to unionize everyone. And at first he, his girlfriend, are on board. But he's very good at telemarketing when he puts on his white voice. So he's a, this is Lakeith Stanfield, he's black. An older telemarketer tells him to use his white voice to sell. And he starts selling encyclopedias like hotcakes. Yep. As they're protesting to unionize, he gets offered to be a power caller and he takes the job because it's so much money. And as a power caller, instead of selling encyclopedias, they are selling weapons to war zones and laborers to companies through the worry-free program. He ends up making a lot of money, really improving his life. Tessa Thompson, who's his girlfriend, ends up leaving him because, of course, he has sold out terribly. He's no longer supporting the union efforts. He's breaking the line to get in to work. But he's kind of fine with it until he goes to a party with the CEO of Worry Free and finds out something insane, which I, you know, we're going to spoil it. Seriously, if you have not seen this movie, yeah, spoiler alert, ahead. stop listening. If you <laughs> don't want to skip ahead to the next movie discussion, yeah. it's in the time codes. Yep. He finds out that the CEO of Worry Free has been turning people into horse man hybrids, equisapiens, so that they can be stronger and work harder and work more. And so he finds these mutants in a holding chamber. He leaves and is no longer a power caller. He rejoins the union effort and tries to get the word out that these equisapiens have been developed by this company. And in the last attempt to block people from working, they get broken up by the police very violently, but he has released the equisapiens who then arrive and, and help fend off the police. And then there's a little tag at the end where prior to learning about the Equisapiens, he snorted what he thought was Coke, but it turned out it was the material that turns you into Equisapiens and he's turning into a horse and mm -hmm. at the end of the movie. And that's sorry to bother you. Tell me about it. Tell me how you felt. I love it. <laughs> I think yeah. it's delightful. There's just so many little bits of this that are so perfect in the way that you would hope from like a satire kind of thing like this there's just these little tiny things that are so good there's in addition to seeing all the worry-free stuff on the tv in the background there also is this game show that everyone in america is watching mm -hmm. it's the only thing they're watching and it's called like i got the shit kicked out of me <laughs> just go on and get beaten up and that is the number one show in america which is 
just great. <laughs> and then the stuff at the call center is amazing. His white voice is hilarious. All of the various things that happen with the white voice are just yes. great. <laughs> so Lakeith good. Stanfield's white voice is David Cross and kudos to David Cross also. <laughs> And Patton Oswalt is the voice of the guy who runs the power caller thing yeah. for him. It's just great. There's this interesting class commentary stuff going on and him making it out of his circumstances to become the power caller, but of course having to sell out any values he ever had in order to do so. The stuff with his girlfriend be getting involved with this unionizing movement that Stephen Yun is running and how easily he gets sort of like swayed away from joining their union efforts when he is individually offered something that will help him. Everyone in it is so good. The script is hilarious. They, oh, I love, I had forgotten. And now I even love more that Army Hammer is the guy that I was going to say, it is very rare for like post scandal casting to improve a thing that an actor was in. But you were like, damn, Boots Riley, you've called this. <laughs> How did you know Army Hammer was such a creep? It's great. And I mean, it's just like every little tiny beat of it is so fascinating. And I just think it's great. Yeah. The, <laughs> really the filmmaking like is so dynamic. When he calls people, he literally drops into their lives, which yes. is also this fascinating directorial choice. Yeah. The twist is wild. Wild. And so funny because he's so he's having this conversation with Army Hammer. Army Hammer is trying to bring him into worry-free take he him shows him the that video <laughs> yeah that well that's after he sees the the equisapiens but he has him snort this cocaine off of a horse plate and then <laughs> and then Lucky stanfield's like yeah i'll watch this video but i really have to pee now can yeah. i i have to use the bathroom he's like use the jade door the jade door <laughs> and he goes out into this hallway and there are four like slightly different shades of green doors and obviously he goes into the wrong door and he comes out army hammer's like that's clearly the olive door <laughs> and then he watches this like but like Michelle Gondry-esque video about the, the Equisapiens and why they were developed and how they will help the company. And it's like, this movie has taken a turn. I was I, I was like, I'm enjoying it. You know, the satire yeah. is great. It's great to but see. But like, where is all this headed? Yeah, obviously, we've seen an uptick in sort of anti-capitalist movies recently, but there's not a ton that are just actually super pro-union, which is yeah. also great. Yeah. We need tools to fight capitalism now that right. we've watched all these anti-capitalist movies. <laughs> Thanks for offering solutions. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, when that happens, you're like, it's, it's it's so scary. You're like, holy fuck, what's happening? And then you're really worried for the youth. The only thing I would say is I didn't love that... Tessa Thompson sort of starts seeing Stephen Yoon romantically and then she drops him to go back to Lakeith Stanfield. I'm like, I don't know about that. I think you should. Yeah. With hanging out I, with Stephen. That sort of thing is tough because you completely understand why she drops him, obviously. He's yes. become a totally different person and you're like, this is crazy. But what that conversation does is like, was he really ever that committed? That's the question in your mind. And mm -hmm. so then when he t comes back around and is like, no, I'm for the cause now because I've seen all these weird <laughs> equisapiens. <laughs> I think there's still the question in your mind of like, he wants to take down the company because the equisapiens are super fucked up. But that doesn't mean yeah. that he really has come around on, you know, the collective versus <laughs> his own, you know, looking after himself. I don't know. You could see her deciding to stay with Stephen Young. But there also is... Like, he's rambling through towns. He's going around unionizing various places. He's not going to be true. around. That relationship wouldn't have worked out. All right. Fair enough. 
I will say something great I also read about this movie was, so the script was written a long time ago. People thought it was a commentary on Trump's America, but he wrote it under the Obama administration. So it's just a commentary about capitalism. But they did have to make some adjustments to the script now that it was being released in 2018, Mm -hmm. including removing a line where a character says, worry-free is making America great again. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) That's like... Oh, and also, can we talk about the fact that all of the worry-free people are dressed up like minions? Yes. <laughs> they all wear these matching jumpsuits. Yeah. It's just the tiniest, perfect little moments. I love when he's seen the Equisapiens and he's <laughs> then gets sat down to watch the movie and he still is like, there's a lot of production value in this. <laughs> That's what, that'll sell him. And then he's like, you can't leave until you see what I'm offering you. And he's Army Hammer slips in the note that says, I am offering you $100 million. It's handwritten in like crayon and like big letters. Because <laughs> he's coked out of his mind. The other, I loved, so that that's happening in the party scene and the scene where they make Lakeith Stanfield rap. Oh, yes, we have to talk about that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So when he's brought to the party, his supervisor tells him to keep doing his white voice because they don't want to spook all the other white people at the party. And so then Army Hammer tells him to drop the white voice because he's clearly become this object of interest that they're playing with him. Mm -hmm. And so they force him to rap. He tells them he doesn't rap. Well, at first, it's like they're all sitting around in a circle and they make him sit on the floor in the middle of them. (laughs) And like, basically, they're like, entertain us. They're like, tell us about yourself. What do you do? And then, yeah, they all start chanting at him. Rap. (laughs) Rap. Rap. (laughs) And so he starts and it's terrible and everyone's like, oh, this is bad. He's like, I'm upsetting Army Hammer. And then he just starts repeating the N word over and over again so the white people can sing along with him. And they're so happy now. (laughs) They love it so much. (laughs) That scene's incredible. It's it's great. I really like this movie. It's really good. Oh, I also really like that when he is found out about the Equisapiens and he tries to get the word out and he goes on, I got the shit kicked out of me and he goes on Mm -hmm. the late night shows to play the video. It just makes the stock price go up for worry free. (laughs) And you're like, this feels real. It feels realistic. It's good. I'm a fan. I liked it a lot. Great. Shall we talk about Black Klansman? Sure. Tell me about Black Klansman. Black Klansman is based on a true story about this cop in the 70s in Colorado Springs, who is the first black cop to join the force there. And he has to, of course, like, they're doing a diversity push in hiring, but he has to jump through all kinds of hoops to join the force. And he uh, is doing sort of grunt work, and then they find a use for him. They want to send him undercover to go to this rally where Stokely Carmichael, now known as Kwame Ture, is speaking to the local Black Student Union. They want to know if he's stoking, you know, violence Racial or whatever. <laughs> exactly. So they send him in. He goes. He listens to the speech. It's a good speech. He's not really that radical he's mostly just saying the truth and through this he has met these other guys who run the sort of intelligence like undercover unit of the police uh who are adam driver and steve buscemi's brother yes (laughs) forget what his first name is i want to say michael i think but i'm not confident yeah it's an m (laughs) so they all are sort of like i don't think there's anything to worry about here no need to further investigate this he gets elevated to their unit He's looking in the paper. He sees an ad in the classifieds that's like, we're looking for people to join our chapter of the KKK. Call here. (laughs) 
so he calls them. He gives them his real name because he's a Ugh. fucking idiot. <laughs> and he's like, hey, this is Ron Stallworth. I just want to join the KKK. I, I, I hate all black people and Jews. And can I join your group? And they're like, hell yeah, brother. Like, come on down. We'll meet you. And so then he realizes he can't show up, obviously, because he's mm-hmm. black. And so he talks them into running a undercover op where he will talk on the phone with the guys from the KKK and Adam Driver will go in person and pretend to be him and they will together be two Ron Stallworths as one Ron Stallworth which I guess is how it worked in real life the whole time I'm watching it I'm like I don't understand why they didn't just make Turn it things Adam Driver over now. To Adam like, Driver now. <laughs> I don't understand why he's doing the phone stuff and Adam Driver's doing the in person but whatever so Adam Driver infiltrates the people at this KKK unit are potentially just big talkers but also potentially staging some sort of violent incident (laughs) so they're keeping an eye on it meanwhile the real Ron Stallworth his membership card is taking a long time to process so he calls up the national headquarters of the KKK and David Duke himself just answers the phone (laughs) and so he starts talking to him about his membership and develops this phone relationship with David Duke where he's talking to him all the time and they're friendly so David Duke's gonna come out and see him at his swearing in ceremony and then meanwhile the sort of not the head of the kkk chapter but the underling people they're trying to blow up the black student union house they're trying to lay the bomb it gets put in a place where it wasn't supposed to be basically what happens is they end up blowing up a couple of their own people and our guys are okay and they kind of sort of take down that chapter of the kkk but like not much other than that happens and then they tell Ron that he can no longer run this undercover op with the KKK. He's not allowed to talk to David Duke anymore. (laughs) What a bummer. And then they end up staging this little undercover thing to get the dirt on a really racist cop that works with them. And they end up being able to fire the really racist cop. And then they're all friends now. Yes. And then the movie has a beat at the end where they show footage of the 2018 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. I like this movie quite a bit. I think it's good. So there's a couple of things. A, it's an interesting story. It's another thing Mm -hmm. like Argo where you're like, this is an interesting story. Probably should be turned into a movie. Sure. Great job. It's one of those stranger than fiction kind of things. Well, yes. As he says in the title card, this is some for real for real shit. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He does a couple of things in this movie that I really enjoy. He interestingly ties what is happening with the KKK to all of the myth of the lost cause pop culture. The yep. movie starts with clips from Gone with the Wind. They yep. have a screening of Birth of a Nation with the KKK. So I love that, that clear connection. This is one of two films we'll talk about sometime in this lengthy process that it kind of digs into black Jewish allyship, which does not always exist. The Adam Driver character is Jewish and he definitely goes on his own journey where he has, you know, sort of been able to pass as white. I don't think he's hiding his Jewishness per se, but it's just something he doesn't think about a lot because he's not practicing. And our Ron Stalwart character is like, I think you should think about it. Like this should make you think about it. And it does. It does Mm -hmm. make him think about it. I also like that this movie didn't let white women off the hook. It sure doesn't. The character who is most aggressive and sets up the bombing plot, his wife is very supportive of him and his KKK participation. And she's the one who ends up going to actually plant the bomb. And 
I think movies often, and we can talk about this also later, probably in this episode, are like, oh, women aren't the problem. It's men. Men are the racist ones. And you're like, no, women can also be the problem. So good there. And then, yeah, the ending on the Charlottesville rally where David Duke was there. And you're like, oh, boy. There's plenty of David Duke footage at the end. And it really hammers home how not that long ago this was. It really does. He doesn't even look that old in the footage. I know. That's what's crazy about it. I'm like, he looks like he's like in his 50s. Was he a child when this happened? Maybe. I did also love Topher Grace as David. He's great. But I always love Topher Grace. He's great. Topher fan. But it's a, you know, it's a demanding role. (laughs) Yeah. We also didn't mention that he has an ongoing relationship with the leader of the Black Student Union, who's a a lady. And it allows the film to sort of conversations about, you know, whether you can make changes to something like the police force from the inside, which are interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm sure people feel different ways about how the police are portrayed in this film and sort of where the film lands around that. But it's definitely a conversation that the movie is having. Yeah. And it's funny in places like a Spike Lee movie. You know, there are parts that'll make you make you laugh, especially when he gets off the phone initially with the KKK and everyone's like, you gave them. Did I just hear you say give your name to the KKK? (laughs) What is wrong with you, dude? (laughs) What do you think about this one? Yeah, I like it. There's parts of it that I really like and then there's parts of it that I think are sort of open to interpretation in maybe not a way that I love. The Adam Driver storyline, I love. I love their couple of conversations about him exploring his own identity and Ron Stallworth being like, I don't understand why this isn't affecting you. He's having to go into these situations where, for the most part, what the guys in the KKK are challenging him on is his Jewishness. There's a guy in it who's like, are you sure you're not Jewish? Are you not Jewish? He's trying to like- He tries to get him to show him his dick. (laughs) Yeah. And he tries to force him to do a lie detector test. And he's mostly having to talk about how much he hates Jews. And so- Ron Stallworth is like, why aren't you mad about this? And he has to be like, well, it's not something I really think about that much. And that's, yeah, he's like, maybe you should think about it. And he does. And there's really interesting interrogation of that. He's kind of mad that now it's he has to think about this part of his Mm -hmm. identity. But it is this cool unifying thing between the two of them, which I agree with you, you don't see a ton. And it would be nice to see more of maybe. Where I don't love it as much is I do feel like kind of by the end, one, they haven't really accomplished that much. (laughs) There's like Mm -hmm. a lot of self-congratulation, but really the story is interesting because it's like, wow, we got away with that. But to what end? And then I don't really buy his relationship with the head of the Black Student Union because their politics are not the same. <laughs> I find yeah. it hard to believe that she can get on board with him just wanting to be a cop at all because she at multiple points is very justifiably saying to him, our people are out there getting killed in the streets by white racist cops. And like, what the fuck are you doing about it? And then I also feel like it's interesting that it leaves you in a place where really this is the Spike Lee version of the white people or black people are friends movie. Like they kick out the one bad racist cop from mm-hmm. their police station. And then all of a sudden their boss is cool with them and they're all friends with each other. And they like play a prank call on David Duke at the end and all laugh about it. And it's like, we're all friends and everything's great. And I'm like, I just don't know that we are. <laughs> I feel like we've left it in a place where he sort of lets... I won't say he lets the viewer off the hook because then he comes in with the Charlottesville video. 
but it just, I don't know, it wasn't as hard hitting as I wanted. It, it's no do the right thing is what I'm saying. I feel like you leave do the right thing with so much to think about and very difficult conversations and questions and interesting things on all sides. And then with this, I was like, it's a really interesting true life story. I get why he was interested in it. He shoots it well. It's stylish. The acting is good. There's some shocking, funny, interesting moments. But then you leave and I'm like, I don't know that it was as hard hitting as I was hoping it would be. Yeah, I, I do wonder. I didn't. I didn't probably do as much looking into this as maybe I should have. Like, if the ending would have been different without the Charlottesville footage, like if it was going to end as it ended now and just end, or mm-hmm. if there would have been like more epilogue also, but he decided to replace it with the Charlottesville with the footage. Like, I'm not quite sure what the process of I that don't know was. Either. But there's a little bit of like interesting back and forth, right? Because they kick out the super racist cop right and then the end beat is really the police chief being like we can't talk about this we can't advertise that we did this yeah. shut it down and so it's like not a hundred percent like fully supported it's not all good but yeah I, I i think how the police come out of this movie is interesting but yeah i could easily see it not satisfying people so i feel mixed about yeah. it honestly i don't I mean, I'm not I'm not here to give my scathing review. For the most part, I really <laughs> yeah. like it. I just, you leave it and are like, what is he really trying to say? Yeah, no, I think it's obviously as terrible as it was. Kind of the most affecting thing about the end of the movie is the Charlottesville yeah. rally footage. And so, yeah, I think without that, I'm not sure how intensely the end of the movie would hit you. It's, yeah. For the most part, it's good. It's a good time. You're going to have a good time watching it. And the fact that it's based on a true story is great. <laughs> the stuff yeah. that happens, you're like, this is wild. I cannot believe this happened. All right. That brings us to our next film, Roma. Okay. So Roma is the story of an indigenous woman in Mexico who is a domestic servant, a housekeeper, nanny, cook combo with another woman for this upper class, upper middle class family in Mexico in the 1970s. The dad is a doctor. And basically, as the movie is starting, the relationship between the parents of the family is falling apart. The dad is having an affair. He goes away to a conference in Quebec and seemingly never comes back. But it turns out he's been back for a while and just not seeing his kids, which honestly is really bad. It's really bad. It's so fucked. That guy blows. I hate him. It's really bad. But we are really focused on this indigenous woman. She's been having a relationship with this guy who is the friend of the other servant's boyfriend. And she ends up getting pregnant. And she tells the guy. And at first he's like, this is great. They're at the movies. And then he's like, I have to go to the bathroom. And she's like, the movie's almost over. You don't want to wait. He's like, no, I got to go. And then he just doesn't come back. And she ends up having to tell the mother of the family that she's pregnant. She's worried she's going to get fired, but the woman doesn't fire her. They help her out throughout her pregnancy. They take her to a doctor to get checked out. And you kind of just see her life for a while as the family goes on vacation without the dad for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And then they come back and it's towards the end of her pregnancy. And the grandmother of the family is taking her to buy a crib And like you said in our earlier discussion, right, there's been sort of political stuff going on in the background. There's clearly some political unrest. We keep hearing stories about people's land being taken and there being issues with land rights. There's some economic Mm -hmm. things that are happening. And while they're buying the crib, there's another student protest that's going to happen. And they say like, oh, I hope the cops don't beat the kids again. And you're like, yeah, me too. And while they're in the store, this 
huge violent outbreak breaks out in the street with the students and there's all these people with like sticks hitting them and you're like am i in a coast of gavris movie now what's it going really on it really feels like a coast of gavris movie one of the students runs into the store and another group of people with guns is following them and one of the people with guns is the deadbeat baby daddy of our character we had known that he had been like doing kung fu and it turns out that the government had been training young men in martial arts and other combat sports to then counter these student protesters over these economic issues so it could seem like it was not the government doing it and it's wild and then she ends up miscarrying the baby she's almost to term and the baby is born, she delivers the born. baby she yeah. yeah goes into labor and it is the baby is still born yeah and it's quite harsh and to kind of make her feel better but also because the mother needs to tell the children that she and the dad are getting divorced they go on this trip to the beach and while they're at the beach the mom tells the kids that the parents are getting divorced and you know they're not (laughs) excited about it but she also reveals them like your dad's been here the whole time he just hasn't been seeing you he's with his mistress i don't know Mm -hmm. and at the end of the movie they're in their final day at the beach, the two young kids want to still go swimming, but the mom needs to leave. And so she tells Cleo to watch the kids, but Cleo can't swim. But they go out too far and Cleo ends up rescuing them. And then Cleo reveals that she didn't even really want the baby to be born. She was ambivalent about it the whole time, which is totally understandable. Yeah, a rough situation. Yeah, and they all drive back together as a family. And so, yeah, as we said, this is sort of like semi-autobiographical for Alfonso Cuaron. It's sort of based on his nanny growing up. Tell me what you thought about Roma. For the most part, I think it's great. It's shot beautifully. I'm obsessed with how he shoots this movie. I'm really glad that it won Best Cinematography. There are all of these great shots where the camera is sort of like panning around either the house or the landscape. And then the action of the scene is barreling through in the same direction as the pan. It's just like so captivating to look at. And there's like great stuff too in some of the scenes where things are happening perfectly timed in the background of the scene and you're like this seems hard (laughs) it's awesome (laughs) it's really cool to look at so leaving that aside i think the characters are so interesting i really like the main girl who was i believe not an actor just someone that they found who Mm -hmm. was super great the way that the story unfolds is like the movie plays out kind of very slice of lifey and there's all sorts of stuff going on in the background that you're just having to glean because we're so narrowly in her perspective. So at the beginning, it's not clear what's going on with the married couple. There's something weird about them, but at first you don't even know that it's necessarily tension with them. And then you start to get little tidbits of things are weird. When the husband leaves, the wife clings to him (laughs) before he goes. And you're like, something's fucking going on with these two. And he's like, it's only a few weeks. And he drives away and she's devastated in the road. So you're getting these little background details. The wife's on the phone to other people in the background of scenes and you're hearing stuff. It's all played out like that. And then all of the political unrest is really background stuff and when they're taking the kids to school there'll be people marching through the street and you're like what is going on with all these people but like I don't know it's not explained let's move on and then the way that it all comes together is really interesting I love the way that Fermin is the guy who's the father Mm -hmm. of her baby I love the way that all of that plays out from meeting him and then not sure what to think of him like the second scene with him They've just had sex and he is naked and demonstrating his martial arts routine to her. And like her face watching (laughs) the absurdity of this is hilarious. And so then, yeah, he sort of disappears for most of the movie. She goes to find him to give him his jacket. He's so awful. He's really awful. She goes to find him 
to basically be like, hello, I told you that I was pregnant and you ran away. What's the deal? And he's there training with this guru guy who's teaching all these martial artists that they should learn how to balance on one foot with their eyes closed. (laughs) It's like a hilarious scene. It plays out like, at first he's just this goofy guy who does the martial arts thing. And then, yeah, he's a real asshole to her. But then you see them training and there's sort of this journey from, you know, oh, I guess he has a bunch of other weird friends that all really love martial arts. (laughs) They're like really into martial arts. And then when he shows up at the end, you're like, oh, they were training a paramilitary. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, the thing is too, right? Like obviously the fact that he leaves her is awful. But in that scene, when she comes to find him, he he tells her like, if I ever see you again, I will murder you. And you're like, this is next level awful. (laughs) Because he doesn't feel like, oh no, she caught me. I'm embarrassed. He's like, why the fuck are you here? And you're like, this is bold, bro. So the way that that plays out is really interesting back to how it looks the end scene at the beach when she rescues the kids i'm obsessed with that shot the way that the camera works is you're looking down the line of where the beach meets the shore and she's like heading out and the camera's following her out and following her in and the waves are crashing like over the camera it's awesome (laughs) i really like how we shot everything about this and then there's something really interesting about the relationship between her and the family and the kids and there's always that weirdness to a nanny made domestic relationship with the kids where the worst versions of it is like the parents don't give a shit about the kids the nanny's actually raising them and is basically their surrogate mother this is an interesting better version where the mom has a good relationship with the kids she clearly loves them there's tension going on in her marriage but she's not being weird about it and they just happen to also have this nanny person and they're like we really love you you're a part of our family and you're still feeling like a little weird about it (laughs) but it's like Mm -hmm. the best possible version and then the way that the film ends I found I'm with you that there's kind of a level of ickiness to it but it plays almost as just so interesting the last scene is she saved these kids they're all like oh my god thank you so much we love you and that's when she has her breakdown and is like I didn't even want the baby And she Mm -hmm. feels really guilty about it. And then after that, they're in the car driving home and the kids are cuddling her and telling her they love her. And she's saying she loves them. And you're left with like, there's something, there's just a weirdness to this. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I brought it up. I I think the thing is, I don't know how to feel about it. Right. And I think there's difference too. Because I think if you're a kid and you grow up with a nanny, you're a child. You don't have a concept of how transactional this is, how she's sort of has to be separate, right? Because she's paid help. The mother does just order around sometimes. Sometimes she's asked to leave and get things, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not your relationship with her because you're four years old and this is just normal to you, right? Yep. And so I can understand it, you know, this is Alfonso Cuaron's experience. And as a kid, I'm sure they do see her as part of the family. They don't know mm-hmm. it anyway. And I'm sure they do love her. And I, I'm i sure she loves those kids too. Yeah. There's just the layer of like, we don't know because it's not written by the person. Like, right. how does she feel about being part of the family, not being part of the family, how she's treated, yes. you know, her other relationships. And he can't know that unless he interviewed her. It doesn't seem like he did. So I'm, I just, I'm just like a little... A little something. (laughs) Well, it's, and I, to be fair to the movie, I think that is part of what's going on with it. I think the fact that it ends with that is intentional. There's an interesting thing going on with it where I think, obviously the kids love her and that's an uncomplicated relationship. Kids are going to love everyone in their life. But And I do think she loves the children too. Obviously. Yes. But I think there's something really interesting to the way that the mother and the grandmother 
they do treat her as more than a person that works for them, right? They have brought her into their family. They're getting her medical attention. They're getting the ones yeah, taking her to- like, it's kind of paternalistic, right? Yes. No, I don't disagree at all. I just think the fact that you leave the movie thinking like, I don't know exactly how to feel about this is part of it. That's part of the experience of watching the movie. I mean, I think we leave it. I'm not sure that everyone leaves well, it like that. Obviously, but- I- I can't guarantee how people are going to watch movies. My impression, though, is that this is part of Quaron's thinking about his childhood. Is what I mean. I guess I uh, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I feel that way. It's just yeah. I, you just always wonder: is it the place of the privileged person to write the story of the non-privileged? It's again like it reminded me of Driving Miss Daisy, where it's the yeah. same thing. The kid of the grandmother wrote the story about her black servant best friend and you're like are you the person to tell this story i mean you told it beautifully alfonso i will give you that it's just like this lingering it's a thing that's there in my brain well that's sort of like i have an itch in my brain at the end of black Klansman too i think you can watch a movie and be like i very much enjoyed this experience this is a very well-made movie i think you did a good job and then there's still something where you're like i don't know yeah (laughs) (laughs) another thing that's interesting about this is it's very much a story about women, and that's another thing where, like, Alfonso Cuarón. It's a story about how men mistreat women, no matter your class. Well, I mean, yeah, there's a point when the mother is really upset about all the things that's happening, and she comes home drunk one night and runs into Cleo and is like, "We are alone. No matter what they tell you, we women are always alone." <laughs> You're like, yeah. damn. So that's another thing where it's like, this is interesting that Alfonso Cuarón is the one making this movie. But I yes. love. What are you going to say? Well, I I agree. I think we would be remiss if we did not mention that's a layer to the film of regardless of class, these women are having similarly terrible experiences with with the men men. in their lives. That is clearly evident in the film. And that's hammered home in what I really love when she finally, she's gone into labor. They've been stuck in this tunnel. Hours later, they finally make it to the hospital. She gets to her doctor and then she runs into the husband because he also is Mm -hmm. a doctor at the hospital. And he acts like, everything's normal nothing has changed like they just saw each other the other day and he's like oh i'm here to support you trying to be all like i'm a great guy and then i'm obsessed with this tiny little beat where she's getting wheeled away to go into delivery and he says to her your doctor won't let me come with you but everything's going to be totally fine and the doctor's like oh you can come and he's (laughs) like oh no i have an appointment (laughs) sorry (laughs) that guy's a piece of shit piece of shit similarly i loved all of the business with his stupid giant car that they cannot fit into their driveway oh it's so good and then eventually the mom gets rid of it and you're like yep you gotta get rid of this stupid giant scene when she drives the giant when she's car in between she's not drunk in the scene when she drives the car in between oh between the two trucks yeah she's drunk (laughs) when she drives it into the the driveway and she's just banging it around she's destroying this car well and it plays drug husband yeah and it plays in this perfect contrast to the when we first meet the husband well before you ever see his face you see his car and it's him like really delicately driving the car into their driveway and pulling back and moving an inch to the right and and you're like i hate this car and i hate this man yeah it's great (laughs) i think it's very good i agree with you there's the itch there's always the itch Okay, well, we have nothing else to say about that. That brings us to, ooh, Death of Stalin. Death of Stalin. What a movie. 
Tell me about Death of Stalin. Okay, Death of Stalin is about the group of advisors who work directly for Stalin at the very end of Stalin's time in the Soviet Union. They sort of set up how fucking batshit everything is while Stalin is alive there, the way that everyone has to live their lives according to his very whims. And he is at the point where he's creating these daily or weekly lists of people that are to be taken away and either murdered or sent to camps for whatever reason he's decided that they should go away. And there are these daily absurdities to it. It starts with this great scene where the people who run the National Orchestra do this live radio show. They've done the show. They get a call from Stalin who's like, I want a recording of tonight's show, which of course they don't have. So they then have to immediately re-perform it with a bunch of people they've brought in from the street to watch. <laughs> it's like- so the acoustics aren't off because it's half empty. <laughs> so it's like just totally absurd what's going on. Stalin ends up dying and his council is sort of jockeying for who's going to take control of the country. There's various factions among them. And we're mostly following Khrushchev, who his idea is to stop most of the horrible stuff that has been happening under Stalin and try to do this move in a reformist direction. And then the opposing force to him is the guy who was the one responsible for the lists of people who are supposed to die. Yeah, the head of the basically secret police. Of the KGB, yeah. And unfortunately for Khrushchev, his immediate move is to do exactly the same thing, to like get ahead of Khrushchev and be like, we're going to make all these reforms that are going to be great when he was the one who was doing all of the murdering. And they're sort of fighting over the guy who is basically next in line, but doesn't have as much of a political brain as them. (laughs) So they're trying to be the one who takes control. There's various figures. There's the head of the military who comes into play. They end up staging a coup, basically, and killing the guy who was the head of the secret police after a quote-unquote trial. And once he's out, then they can sort of move forward to a new Russia. And you also have, throughout the course of it, they're having to, Khrushchev's having to plan his funeral, which is this like hilarious, ridiculous annoyance. His children are in town and his daughter is kind of interesting, but her his son is a total loose cannon. <laughs> so they're having to manage the two of them as all of this is happening. And it's about, you know, the machinations of making alliances and trying to seize power and trying to run a government. And it's hysterical. It's yes. a really, really hilariously written satire. Thoughts? I really like it. It's so funny. It is a Black comedy, black satire. One of the fun things that Iannucci decided to do was let everyone just do whatever accent they wanted. I love that everyone just has their own accent. Which works out. It's kind of perfectly to, you know, it goes in line with the characters. And I think the other thing about it, and this, this is also kind of a perfect film for the Trump era, is it's all these people who are vying for power, but also they've been living in a state of fear for so long, right? There's Mm -hmm. this guy who could literally kill them in this case. And so all of them have no center and all of them are so worried that everyone else is going to catch them in a lie or they're going to do something that gets them in trouble and they're going to be executed. And so mm-hmm. there's there's just like constantly back and forth like, no, I didn't say that. Or yes, I did say that. One of the characters played by Michael Palin, he thought his wife had been murdered by Stalin, but really Barry had been keeping her around. And then she comes back and there's so much back and forth about like, yeah, she definitely should have been executed. She was a traitor. And then he, she comes back and he's like, oh my God, you were innocent the whole time. I'm so happy to see you. <laughs> It's like, no, 
Yeah. Really funny is like Khrushchev is the one who's like, I, who was wrongly accused when she arrives. But her husband is the one who still, he like is the most loyal to Stalin, even though Stalin is mm-hmm. dead. And also was about to kill him too. He doesn't realize he was on the list no, right before Stalin died. He's Because he's so loyal to Stalin and the idea of Stalin being right, he, the, her husband is like still maintaining that his wife should have been killed. Even when everyone else is willing yeah. to just move on. There's all of, yeah, perfect little and intricacies. I, it kind of plays out too, like the way that Khrushchev wins is he gets the general Zhukov on board. And Zhukov is the only person who is just a man of his own will. I don't think he was afraid of Stalin. And so he's happy to move forward as he sees fit. And that yeah. I think is really the key is he's not this political figure who's like, I have to stay alive. I have to stay in Stalin's good graces. Yeah. I have to switch at any moment. He's like, yeah, let's fucking do this. Yes, and he's, he's great. on I board. Love. It's Jason Isaac. He's yeah. fabulous. He's great. But I though also, I mean, I, it's so interesting. This made me go down a rabbit hole of reading about Khrushchev and all of the real history mm-hmm. of Russia. But it is really interesting also the way Khrushchev gets it done like yes he needs the mechanism of Jason Isaac's character to actually make this happen because he has the opposing force to the sort of power of the KGB but he also does it by just sort of winging it like no one will agree unless everyone else is on board so he just Mm -hmm. goes around and is like everyone's on board (laughs) he said yes he said yes they all said yes and they're still like at the funeral carrying Stalin's body when one of them is like I don't know is so and so signed on I don't know if I can sign on and he just to Jason Isaacs is like we're go (laughs) it's fine you're like somebody had to make the decision you know we couldn't get by with this other guy and that that when they kill like much as it is not a real trial when they end up killing this head of the secret police i believe that is the last time that somebody in a russian transition of power was murdered (laughs) yes and they said that khrushchev was different because he just ended up demoting everyone that's how he maintained power which is obviously much better than murdering people so he was really a reformer which was also good i think well he's probably the reason that we we made it through the cuban missile crisis (laughs) yeah I think they would have been much worse off if Varia had actually gained power because he yeah. was a nightmare. Yeah. But no, it's just, it's funny. I don't know if we want to go through some of our favorite comedy beats, sure. but that would be the rest of my <laughs> discussion. Yeah, of let's do a movie, couple. Honestly. We gotta. Yeah. I love the whole back and forth. So there's like a picture of Stalin with this little girl that yeah. the Jeffrey Tambor character, I can't remember what the second line guy's name was. Is um, it, it wasn't Mal- Malenkov, was Mal- it? Malenkov, I think it's him. Okay. Malenkov wants to get this little girl to recreate the picture at the funeral. Mm-hmm. And so they bring in a bunch of different little girls at first. And he's like, no, we want the actual girl. And so the, this guy goes off to find the actual girl. And obviously now she's a teenager because this yeah. picture was taken. He's like, no, we need a little girl. And so then they go back and they find a little girl who looks like the little girl in the picture. But the end beat of that is so funny because she's standing on the balcony next to him and she's too short to be seen. <laughs> you just see the top of her head. So this yeah. guy went through all of this business to find the girl, to find the whole for no one to be able to see her oh it's really good (laughs) that is great there's a lot of good Malenkov beats I love when they've started to kind of band together against Beria and they make a move against him and Beria reveals that he has a file on all of them and like I I got dirt on you and I've got dirt on you and I'm gonna take down all of you and he's like gesturing at them all of you (laughs) and then he leaves 
And Malenkov is basically like, wow, he's like really mad at you guys. And they're like, no, he was talking to all of us. And he's like, no, all of, all of, all of you. you. And they're like, all of you. <laughs> all of you. <laughs> he's really that part's funny. great. The kids are interesting too. The daughter's a little bit more together. The son is like a drunk, but he also recently lost the national hockey team. They died in a plane crash. They died crash. in a plane crash, yeah. So he's figuring out what to do with that. But I loved him. He was hilarious. There's a very lengthy scene where when Stalin is getting autopsied and he's struggling with a, a guard for a gun and it goes on for like a really long time and everyone's just standing there. They're just standing there doing him, nothing. Watching him struggle with this guard to try to pull the gun out of his waistband. It's pretty good. I love what Khrushchev calls Khrushchev's law, where whenever they've had a meeting with Stalin, they go home and then they tell their wives everything that they said to Stalin. And they're like, I mm-hmm. told a joke about farmers. Did he laugh? Yes. Okay, great. I told a joke about like the infrastructure. Did he laugh? No. <laughs> like, so that in the morning, they will remember what they should and should not say going forward with Stalin. Yeah. It's like, wow. No, some of them are like dodge bullets. Molotov dodged a bullet and also Malenkov probably because at the dinner when Stalin was still alive, he's like, whatever happened to Trotsky? And they're like, don't, whatever happened to Trotsky? <laughs> Why would you bring that up? And then I love when Khrushchev tries to p- start plotting with Jason Isaacs. And at first Jason Isaacs is like, oh my God, I'm going to report you to Barry. And he like really pretends this is very serious. Yeah. And Jason Isaacs is like, oh my God, mm-hmm. your face. <laughs> His introduction is also so great. He's talking to Beria and Khrushchev and he's like, why did the NKVD replace the military at all the posts? I'm smiling, but I'm really fucking furious. (laughs) I'm smiling. (laughs) He's great. great. He comes in partway through the movie and he like just re-energizes A second wind. He's he's so intense and insane. And also, again, like talking about him being the only character with a center the son is freaking out and he's complaining to the Chinese who are there for the funeral that they're going to sell his dad's body yeah. to American pedophile capitalists. And Jason Isaac comes in and punches him in the stomach and is like kicking him. And then the sister comes in and she's like, who did this? And Jason Isaac's like, I did it. And I'm glad about it. And she's like, well, if any of the rest of you ever, and he's like, well, that's me yeah. told off. I'm going that's to me go told. represent the entire red army at the, at the buffet. Well, that's good because it's part of this running thing where Khrushchev keeps – he wants her on his side Mm because maybe she'll be useful someday. So he keeps saying to her, if anyone tries to harm you or your brother, I won't let that happen. And she's like, why do you keep bringing up harm? (laughs) He just keeps saying it. And then when her brother's on the floor, she's like, this is a perfect example of harm. <laughs> it's really good. I also love, we already mentioned, but Molotov being so loyal to Stalin is mm-hmm. hilarious when obviously he was just about to be murdered. But then at the end, when they finally have successfully signed off on Beria's death and they kill him, he says to them, Stalin would be loving this. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, this guy. It's really good. I like it a lot. Would recommend. Yeah. The very end line beat of it is they've just completed the transfer of power. Malenkov's taking over. And then Khrushchev and his guy that he does most of his scheming with are walking off towards him. And and he's like, I'm worried about Malenkov. Can we trust him? And they say, can you ever trust a weak man? (laughs) No. Malenkov is not long for the The position. Yeah. 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 It's great. Everybody should watch it. Very funny. And it also is such a pleasant way to do a little bit of Russian history, right? Like it, it peaks it your does, mind. It does make watching the horrors of what's actually happening like palatable. Yeah. 
Okay. Does this mean that we have to us, talk about? Yeah, that brings us to our winner, Green Book. So Green Book is a story set in the early 1960s. We start off on this guy, Nick Bellalonga. He's a bouncer in a club. The club shuts down for a little while. He needs a new job. We know that he's prejudiced because at his house, two black guys come to fix the sink or something. And his whole family's there being very overtly racist and Italian towards these two black guys. And then when they leave, he like throws away the glasses that they were drinking from the wife has to later retrieve them from the trash anyway he gets offered a job to drive this doctor he thinks around it turns out the doctor is don shirley who is a famous jazz pianist who is going on a tour of the deep south and so he needs both a driver and basically like a bodyguard at first you know he's like oh i don't want to take this job but he ends up offering him enough money and he's like i know your reputation that's why i selected you and so they go off on this tour of the deep south and, you know, they have like little incidents along the way. Over the time, they become friends. Don Shirley is helping Nick write letters back to his wife. Nick begins to understand the type of prejudice that Don Shirley is facing. He ends up really becoming his defender. And they make it home in time for Christmas. I don't, yep. I don't know if there's any yep. other details to really yep. Yep. hit that yep. are necessary. But that's it. That's Green Book. I mean, I guess what I'll start with, we can talk about the details and intricacies of Green Book as much yes, as the little as we want to. But really, I just find it wild that in a year of If Beale Street Could Talk and Black Klansman and Sorry to Bother You and fucking Black Panther, <laughs> that the Academy looked at this movie and was like, ah, yes, here's a movie about American racism. <laughs> This is the one. <laughs> and they so voted for it. It's so, I, yeah, I, I will say overall, like, I find myself in a very similar place with this film as I did with Driving Miss Daisy, which I think ultimately it's like, it's fine. Like, it's, it's fine. It's, it's okay. It shouldn't have been nominated for Best Picture. It shouldn't have won Best Picture. But it feels like the Academy is not only playing a prank on us, but it's playing a prank on this movie. Like, the Academy gets together when they see a movie about two people of different races driving together. And like, how can we take this basically milquetoast fine yeah. movie and make it one of the most hated films in American history? How can we do that? It oh, let's do it time. again. It, it was so fun the first time. time. We're going to make Green Book an object of hatred. And it's like, why would you do that? <laughs> Why have you done this to this movie? <laughs> it's necessary. Okay. You mentioned that they set up that he's really racist, right? That black guys are in his house. He throws away their glasses because he doesn't want anything that's touched their lips. That's like pretty textbook virulent racism, yeah. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And because they need you to be like, oh, this is where we're coming at this story, I guess. And also it's written by one of the Valalongas. So they don't want to be accused of letting him off the hook, I assume, is where this is coming from. Probably. But other than that moment, it hardly plays into the movie at all that he's racist. He goes to meet Don Shirley, doesn't have the what you would expect in a movie of this quality moment where he walks in and he's like, whoa, whoa what? I was expecting a doctor. <laughs> like That doesn't even happen. He's just like, oh, OK, I don't know. I don't think this job's for me. And then he gets talked into it. But with very little difficulty, does he get talked into it? And then the two of them are on the road together. There's not very many moments of him being, quote unquote, racist to Don Shirley. There's a lots of moments absurdly of him teaching Don Shirley about black culture <laughs> that are like, what the fuck are these doing in here? Well, I think it's in service of one of the thematic 
lines of the movie, but we can talk about that. Yeah. And so there is like this journey to learn that people are, but see, it doesn't need to go on a journey to learn that people are racist to Don Shirley because he already, when it starts, is like, why would you even bother going into the South? And they pretend to do an arc where you're learning why he would agree to go in the South. But for some reason, they have it play out entirely with his musicians and never with him. So there's a part where the musicians are like, Don Shirley could have just stayed in New York and made much more money. Oh, and worked okay. with- You're saying they play out with the musicians explaining it to Nick yes. Balonga, not Don Shirley. Okay. Sorry. Right. So there's a beat where the musicians are like, Don could have just stayed in New York and lived the high life and have it, everything be fine. But for some reason, he decided to go on this tour of the Deep South. And at the time, they don't explain why. And then later there's another beat also with the backing musicians who are like this is about real courage and taking chances and you have to go and confront people or there won't be change and i just don't understand why none of that is ever put in don shirley's mouth (laughs) there's like one scene where don talks a little bit about how he's really lonely there's like a little a blow-up conversation between him and valalonga but there's just so little diving into what's going on with Don Shirley because obviously we're in Valalonga's perspective but I just don't get it it didn't even follow the bad version arc of the movie about racist becomes not racist it's just sort of like what are we what are we doing here I didn't get it <laughs> what did you I don't know that I had the same issues with it I, yeah. I think it was following that storyline and then there's the second storyline of Don Shirley because of how he grew up doesn't feel that he also fits in with black people and I think mm-hmm. that is a real thing like black people yeah. can also be rejecting of black people who don't fit in culturally absolutely and so I don't think that's incorrect and I like to me the reason that the musicians were explaining it to Nick Thalonga is in line with Shirley's character he's quite reticent mm-hmm. and shut down right he keeps to himself and I think that's part of who he is in the movie and that's to me why that was happening so I don't know that I had any of those issues but I don't know. I just don't have a lot of feelings about it. I think you, you can program with Driving Miss Daisy. You can sit alongside other movies of this type that I like better. And I think it is worth saying there are some movies of this type that I like. I love Remember the Titans. It's I'd watch that wonderful. any day of the week. Remember the Titans is the best. <laughs> Whenever we do the year of that, we will, I'm sure, be adding Remember the Titans to the Well, year. we have to because the Academy cannot explain to me how it nominates Driving Miss Daisy in this movie and not Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans is so much better than Driving Miss Daisy in this movie. I cry every time I watch it. When it gets it's to wonderful. the end and the one kid's been in a car accident. I Let's not talk about it now because I will get emotional. <laughs> Okay. So yeah, I hear what you're saying about it not following the arc. It even makes sense to follow. But the idea that you have to change races on an individual and interpersonal level is true. It is true. The government cannot legislate that. Education won't help. You can't bully people on the internet into not being racist at an individual level. Like this is how this happens. And it's Mm -hmm. frustrating and it's unfortunate. But again, with all sticky problems, right? You have to do all the things at once. So this, it's fine. It's a fine story. You know, it makes people hopeful. That's great. I will say in favor of Driving Miss Stacy, mm-hmm. that movie is an hour and 39 minutes long. Yep. This movie tight, is two people. hours and 15 minutes long. Cut 35 minutes out of it. Yeah, you don't need 35 more minutes. No, you don't need it. So I don't know. I also thought it was interesting that there's a reveal that Don Shirley is gay or at least is like having sexual encounters with men. And yeah. That Nick Valalonga is totally chill. Yeah. <laughs> well, also, like, to be fair, there are a number of things that happen in this movie where I'm like, oh, Don, why would you think 
like, really stupid. To have dog. a gay encounter in the deep south as a black man. Bad idea. <laughs> when he walks into that white bar, gets beaten up. Yeah. Bad idea. Bad idea. He's just making, making some interesting choices. choices. <laughs> yeah. And then he's mad at Nick Bellalonga for paying off the cops to let him go. He so easily could have been killed for them finding him having sex with a guy in the deep south. I know. Like, the fact that he's then like, I can't believe you rewarded them for their bad behavior. It's like, he got you out of there alive, didn't he? What did you expect? (laughs) Yeah. I thought the performances were fine. Yeah. The only other note I have about this movie was, did you notice how many lamps Don Shirley had in his apartment? He's a man of fine taste. He had like 12 lamps in that room and they were fancy lamps and they were all turned on. And I was like, this is out of control. There's way too many lamps. <laughs> Do we want to talk a little bit since you brought it up earlier about white women, letting white women off the hook? Uh, yeah, we can. Yeah, yeah, this is this is the movie where you're like, I mean, Linda Cardellini, love her as yeah. an actress. Sure. But she's not prejudiced at all. She's at like all. totally cool with those black guys in her house and she takes yep. the glasses out and like i don't know Th- this is another conversation an entirely different conversation but i can't imagine if i'm not a prejudiced person just being like it's fine that you're prejudiced right it's not unbelievable that she would not be prejudiced but then that she's married to this guy that supposedly is so prejudiced and you're like this is an interesting yeah. situation. <laughs> you run into that all the time where people are like, our political views are diametrically opposed and yet we're married. And you're like, wow. Yeah. Good for you. They're really making it work. Yeah. It I shouldn't mean, have been nominated. It no. shouldn't have won Best Picture. It it's not worth be spending that much conversation on. But a little movie that was made that people could watch if they wanted to. And I, I think the Academy is actually pretty cruel. <laughs> maybe the academy is actually the wokest of all and they're trying to punish people for making these milk toast it feels like it It they want people to be really furious that do the right thing wasn't nominated and equally furious that (laughs) driving miss daisy won yeah Mm -hmm. secret conspiracy theory a different narrative about the academy Okay, I think that's all of the movies. Yeah, we got to wrap it up. That's plenty. So what do you think is the best of the worst and the worst of the worst? This is tough because there are four great best of the worsts. Yeah. My personal favorite of Sorry to Bother You, Black Klansman, Roma, and Death of Stalin is probably Death of Stalin. But I think that they're all excellent. Yes. I will say I do love Death of Stalin. And I also, like, sorry to bother you, such a ride. Mm-hmm. But my favorite might actually, despite my itches, be Roma. It's so beautiful. It's I don't beautiful. have any problem with that being your favorite. Yes. <laughs> worst of the worst? Honestly, my least favorite is probably Vice. Okay. Mine is A Star is Born. Okay. That's a lot of movies. A lot of losers. It, it sure is. But a full four of our eight losers are not losers, really. That's true. They just, they got which, the matchups they got. Which that is, feels pretty damn good. It really does. If four of these eight movies are actually good and eight of the next eight movies are also good, it's a good year. A hell of a year for movies. Good year. <laughs> okay. So what are we talking about next time? Well, next time we are continuing our discussion of the films of 2018. Our round two matchups are... These are all going to be interesting. <laughs> Eighth grade versus If Beale Street Could Talk. 
Compare those in your mind. Wow. Then we have Paddington 2 versus Burning, (laughs) followed by Can You Ever Forgive Me versus The Favorite. And then, this is actually an excellent matchup, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse versus Black Panther. Ooh, that's such a good matchup. So some of these are kind of a a mindfuck. We've got our work cut out for us in the next episode. Think about. Boy, oh boy. Excited for that. In the meantime, if you have thoughts about any of these many, many movies, please reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend, leave a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. Bye.